Flight Guys Turkey, coming to you weekly from Istanbul. Your smart guide to the state of Turkey. Welcome to Zeitgeist Turkey. This is Cansu Çamlıbel. And on the line with me, my podcast partner, Can Selçuk'i. Hi, Can. Hi, Cansu. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Continuing self-isolation at my home. We are coming to you from Istanbul, where we keep self-isolating ourselves, despite the government's decision to relax the COVID measures starting this week. Personally, I'm not in a rush for going to the hairdresser or a shopping mall, as I see all those habits are quite trivial at this moment. I hope we won't face a second wave of the outbreak in Turkey because of this hasty return to normality. Of course, I say normality in inverted commas, because it feels that this experiment is a version of trying herd immunity because the Turkish economy is in shambles. How do you feel about the relaxation of the measures, John? Have you had a round to the shopping mall yet? Uh, no, I can hardly contain myself going to the shopping mall. But like you, John, so I'm not in a hurry. You know, when you look at the normalization rules, there are a lot of contradictory ones. So it again makes one wonder if this is a well-thought-out strategy. Biggest contradiction for me is we're allowed to go to shopping malls this week, but we're not allowed to go to a park. Exactly. So, you know, a set of rules where you are not allowed to go to a park, but you're allowed to go to a shopping mall, a closed building with centralized air conditioning, you know, one really has to be skeptical as to how how a robust thinking was behind this. And I fear uh, not a very robust strategy is behind this normalization measures. Well, I hope our fears and concerns will be proved wrong and uh, the country keeps recovering from the virus as well as the whole world. But today we will discuss another dimension of the coronavirus times and we have a guest. Assistant Professor Mert Aslanal from Boğaziçi University. He teaches comparative political systems as well as urban policies and democratization. He has been doing extensive research on democratization and citizenship. And that's why he is here with us today. We'll talk about the COVID tracking apps introduced by the Turkish government. What kind of dangers those apps would pose against our privacy and personal space in the post-corona era? Hi, Mert. Great to have you with us. Hi, Jansu. Great to be here. How are you doing with the distance teaching nowadays? It's fine. We've been doing it for the past month now, since April 7th in Boğaziçi. And I've been getting used to it, but I can't say I'm enjoying it. It's working. The students seem to be somewhat fine with it under the circumstances, obviously. But you know, I hope that it's not going to be a permanent aspect of our lives in the near future. <laughs> I am totally with you, actually. <laughs> so... Let's dive into our subject. So, Matt, maybe we can start a discussion with a recent research that you have completed. You looked into state of emergency applications, implementations, enforcements in Turkey between 2008 and 2019. The main hypothesis is that Turkey, in one way or another, has been imposing emergency conditions on the public, even when there wasn't actually a formal announcement of emergency uh, conditions. 
Perhaps you can elaborate a bit on your research and then we can carry the discussion forward with regards to the lockdowns that we are experiencing in Turkey today and what this might mean in the post-COVID era. I and my colleague Deniz Erkman from Özgün University, we've been working on a research project for the past three years on emergency measures, but specifically how emergency or emergency-like measures have been implemented with regards to the right to peaceful protests. So we've been basically looking at what kind of bans and other forms of measures that the government has been issuing in Turkey in order to suspend or restrict the protest rights, peaceful protest rights like freedom of assembly. And the period that the project covers is from 2007 to 2019. And within this period, we kind of collected data based on two news outlets, Bianet and Hurriyet, their online archives, obviously not only us, but our research assistants. We collected data on all the protest bans that have been issued during that period. So what we found out was that Within this realm of protest freedoms, we found like 694 protest bans enacted in 53 provinces during this period. And 287 of those bans were issued before the state of emergency that was declared in July 2016 after the coup attempts. 241 bans were issued during the state of emergency. And then since the termination of the state of emergency in July 2018, we again see 166 bans that were issued up until the end of 2019. And as we all know, such bans have continued the first months of 2020. And then with obviously with the pandemic, you know, in any case, all protest activity came to a halt. So what we found out in this project is that, you know, as you also pointed out, bans, although they became more intensive and especially longer under the state of emergency, they were still there, like, you know, governors were still issuing these bans before the emergency. And the number of such bans have been increasing, especially since 2012. So basically, as part of Turkey's autocratization process, uh, its transformation into an authoritarian regime, in the last decade, we also see a rise in the in number of protest bans. When, when I say protest bans, we also include the curfews that were issued in southeastern provinces from 2014 onwards, actually, since the Kobane protests. But even when we exclude the curfews, we see an increase in the number of protest bans. And they are quite widespread. So in terms of their subject matter, they are also quite widespread. Although the Kurdish protests have been suspended the most, Uh, we also see suspensions of protests from women protests to, to LGBT, to, to environmental, to, to urban protests, as we well aware of it during the Gezi Park protests and its aftermath. So one of the arguments that we've been making in the two papers that are kind of forthcoming, first of all, perhaps a new modality or a different modality of emergency measures, which is that, you know, a government imposing emergency-like suspension of rights without necessarily declaring a state of emergency. And in our research, we call this mobile emergency rule, given the very mobility of such uh, bands, both across territory, but also in time, and also given its very uh, localized, particularistic and temporary characteristics. So instead of a state of emergency, which is much more encompassing, often national, remains, you know, stay in time as the experience from 2016 to 2018, Before 2016, we see governments like issuing these bans in a very localized, temporary fashion. And I think even the curfews in the southeast kind of fit into this modality of 
repression and suspension of rights. And I don't think protest rights is the only arena that we see this technique of government being utilized. We also, I think, see this being implemented in the in the media, right? So whenever there is an urgent situation, an extraordinary situation, there are all these bans on banning the reporting of that event for a particular time period. So that's also a very localized, particularistic suspension of freedom of information that is, you know, imposed in one moment and then, you know, withdrawn in another moment. You don't really pass a law, you don't really bring the parliament together. It's an administrative decision. It's temporary, it's very mobile, but I think it's also quite effective, actually. As a follow-up to what you said, this emergency measure over the media, this administrative measure over the media, is exercised in quite interesting ways, actually. In the last weeks, we saw... Uh, a broadcast ban on the stories related to the house of the presidential communications director Fahrettin Altun, that he got preferential treatment in terms of building his house on the Bosphorus. And these stories are effectively banned by the authorities. These are administrative decisions and these are used in non-emergency times as well. So it's just a little reminder for the audience. Yeah, that's an excellent example, actually. And it's also an example of a second point that we are kind of making in our research, which is that once you start using these these kind of measures, you know, it's really hard to contain them and it's really hard to limit their deployment. So once you start deploying them in response to perhaps a real urgency, perhaps with certain legitimate basis, It becomes part of the repertoire of governing and then you see the same kind of bans or limitations, restrictions being then deployed for causes, issues that have nothing to do with an urgent situation. This is also a point that the larger literature makes on emergency powers and that's what we also observed with regards to protest bans during the state of emergency. So protests that had nothing to do with the cause of the emergency have also been suspended, like environmental protests in Artvin, LGBT events in Istanbul and Ankara. Even the Women March. Yeah, the Women March. A concrete example of one of those measures that stayed in place, although the state of emergency was lifted in Turkey. So I think there are several. Obviously, the biggest one is not a law, but the emergency was used as a way to change the political system, right? The government system. So it was not a moment of suspending the norms, but it was a moment of creating new institutions, creating new laws. So in this case, a, a shift from the parliamentary to the presidential system. So that's obviously the most consequential of those. There are all sorts of decrees that were issued and they have not been removed, right? Their consequences have been with us. You know, people have been per- and they are not returned to their jobs. But there were also changes. For instance, there was a change in the provincial administration law, so Article 11, and there, you know, basically now expanded the power of the governors to restrict mobility. That was carried out during the emergency. And it was specifically carried out so that, you know, once the emergency is lifted, the governors would still enjoy the same kind of powers, or at least to some extent, the powers that they were enjoying under the state of emergency. Mm-hmm. And what we've been seeing since then is Actually, governors deploying these to to curtail, for instance, protest activity, like during the Kayum protests, protests against removal of the elected mayors from from HDP in Kurdish southeast municipalities. Against those protests, 
The governors issued like sometimes month-long, sometimes 15-days-long protest bans. In some cases, actually mobility bans. Mm-hmm. Emergencies are moments of also creation and redesigning political and, and, and social relations in long-lasting ways. So this assumption that we will go back to status quo ante, to the normal, is misleading. It creates a new, we now say a new normal. Mm-hmm. It creates a new set of laws, institutions, relations between state and society. So Matt, let me jump in here and ask you perhaps to speculate on how this uh, current feeling about curfews and lockdowns would be carried into the post-pandemic period. Because all the examples that you've provided so far, vis-a-vis protests that have been expressed, are rather marginal segments of the society. I don't necessarily believe that that any part of the society is marginal, but uh, surely the administration does. However, under this current lockdowns and curfews, all of a sudden it's a matter for everybody, right? Regardless of sexual orientation, ethnicity, religious belief. So how do you think this will change going forward public's perception towards such measures and and also also the government's? Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of ironic, right? Like you've been, you know, very critical of the past curfews or bans, but I've been asking for a total lockdown. I've been asking, obviously, in my private circles, but uh, I've been asking for a total lockdown under the circumstances. The lockdown under these circumstances is not so much of a suspension of rights, but actually protection of our very basic rights. And in fact, the real suspension of rights under the current pandemic was, you know, all those people who were exposed to the viral risk due to being obliged to work in order to earn. So what I would say is that by not issuing a total lockdown, the government actually violated the rights of certain citizens and certainly violated its duty to equally protect the citizens by exposing a considerable sector of the society to the virus. The positions have been reversed, obviously, during this pandemic. In terms of steering this whole debate about emergency, non-emergency measures introduced by the governments, so now we have the pandemic tracking projects, apps, whatever you call them, introduced by almost every government. And uh, coming back to the one in Turkey, as far as I know, it's a voluntary one. So you're not obliged or forced to use this application. But for instance, the Russian version is scarier than the one we have in Turkey because there are codes, the police is involved. If the citizens provide false information, they are penalized. Also, it's mandatory. Comparing the one we have in Turkey and similar examples elsewhere, What can you say about this whole phenomenon, Mert? And also, John, I know you have interesting data on how the Turkish society perceive the privacy versus health measures. So please take it from here. So, John, so maybe let me reflect a bit about the Turkish public's view vis-a-vis the trade-off between personal liberties and security protection, whether this be in the area of you know physical security or health uh, in this particular case. So a couple of months ago, there was a legislation passed that increased the authority of neighborhood watchers units. And this is a unit that's not the police. It's like an ancillary unit that doesn't go through the training that regular police does. They were given the authority to carry a gun. Uh, They were given the authority to ask you for an ID. Under these circumstances, more than 50% of the population actually said that the night watches should be actually given this authority. Again, more than 50% of the population say that they trust 
neighborhood watchers, they think that they are useful. In the trade-off between uh, security and personal liberties, Turkish society doesn't seem to care that much to begin with. And finally, before handing it off to Max, your example in Russia is one extreme one. On the other hand, in Australia, for example, there's a similar tracking device, but the court recently decided that the police will not be able to access the metadata that's being collected by this app. So on the one end of the spectrum, uh, you have Russia, and on the other end of the spectrum, maybe you have Australia. And somewhere in the middle, towards more the scary part, the US, for example, there was a public tender to develop such an app, and the tender was awarded to Peter Thiel, who is actually one of the biggest Silicon Valley founders of President Trump from early days. John, they call him the only Trumpist in Palo Alto. <laughs> Okay, that's not that's not really a title that one would envy, least to say. But uh, you know, looking at this picture, it looks like there's a scary world forming right before our eyes. What do you think, Matt? I think this the expansion of such apps it can basically constrain our freedoms or make us more regulated. Perhaps even you know, harsh word would be dominated uh, in two ways. The first one is that all these apps, as you suggested, give the state an immense amount of data data about our mobility, but data also perhaps about our preferences. You know, there may be restrictions on which state administrations will have access to them or not, but then, you know, we also know that such restrictions can also be relaxed for certain categories of people under certain circumstances. All those protections may also be relaxed in time in different targeted fashion. That would facilitate even more nuanced and more refined use of what I earlier pointed out as this mobile emergency practices. Basically, even more targeted, uh, even more you know, particularized uh, interventions of the state to our everyday lives and to our, to our freedoms. That's you know, one part of it. We kind of see the coupling of more and more these surveillance technologies with explicit forms of state bans and all that, and making them much more refined and much more effective, perhaps. But also, a second aspect could be, even when they are not mandatory to use, there may be immense incentives to use them, right? Basically, incentives on our part to improve our health in order to improve our everyday well-being, which we are already doing with certain apps and sharing our private data. So in that sense, they don't even have to be mandatory. They may be voluntary, but you may use them for all the benefits that they have. By using them, basically, we can expand state regulations to our everyday lives, which have been the trend anyway over the course of the 20th century. And honestly, you know, I don't think we know how to navigate all the tensions inherent in these. The app produced by the Turkish Minister of Health is a rather uh, primitive one, and it doesn't really give you much information or protection for foreign listeners, perhaps we should say what the app does. It actually pinpoints your location and tells you whether if you're in a high risk, middle risk or a low risk area. Uh, it's just a nice picture to have. I don't think anybody actually regulates their everyday life by looking into that app. But for example, in a, in a month or two, if the app could be updated, upgraded to, for example, include a module whereby you could, I don't know, pay taxes or get mm-hmm. certain permissions. And if, you know, certain features are introduced into the app to incentivize people, then, like you said, people might be opting in uh, more voluntarily. And this is actually the case in some countries where governments build these super apps whereby you can do 
many state functions, undertake many state functions using the app, so people are uh, rather happy to use it. In some countries, these apps are coupled with other surveillance techniques, like the facial recognition cameras. And uh, as Matt pointed out, it doesn't really matter if we are talking about an autocratic government or a relatively democratic one. Because if you remember, the first countries which were affected by the coronavirus, China and South Korea and Singapore. In terms of governance, we are talking about different countries, but they all deployed uh, facial recognition. And also Russia deployed facial recognition. So when we are talking about coupling these apps on our phones with the facial recognition to find out who is moving where in the city is quite scary, actually. So on one hand, you're personally, voluntarily surrendering your data of movement, your precious information, but also you are being subject to a different kind of surveillance by the state. As much as we have a problem with the governments having access to our most precious information, I also have a problem with these big tech companies getting hold of every single step of my personal life, all my data, because we know from several scandals, and especially from the one with Facebook, that our data is stored somewhere. And our data is being used and manipulated for several reasons that we are not aware of. So I think when we are talking about the dangers of these apps, we should look beyond the relationship between the government and the citizen. Probably our relationship with these tech companies are even more critical. Jansu, you are absolutely right. In fact, an application that was being developed by Belgium and the Netherlands for the purpose of COVID response, the data of that application was leaked online uh, just a couple of days ago, around 200 phone numbers and location data belonging to around 200 people were released online. So this is very recent and right on spot to what you are saying. Power and power relations, ultimately, as you suggest, it's, it's built around these public-private partnerships, right? In many arenas of life now, we are regulated through public-private partnerships. And that is also the case with these big tech companies and how they are now interfused with states. And each one is an asset to the other, right? So you're absolutely right that we should also be worried about these companies amassing this much data in our private lives and having this much surveillance. So we are going to wrap up our conversation for today soon. This is a question for both of you. What would you suggest to our audience? Would they definitely refrain from using these apps? Or is there a way to use apps in a smarter way so that we can actually benefit from the information that the app provides, but also protect our data, protect our privacy? Is there a way? Jansu, I think it's not possible to completely control what's happening because, you know, even for the most digitally savvy consumer, it's very difficult to know what's going on in the algorithms at the back of these uh, applications and software. But what I've been increasingly becoming more aware is that many of these apps and software have more options than we normally know that let you control what data you share with them. So I think for my part, at least, I'm taking the time 
to look into what options an app or a social platform provide me in protecting my data. Even when you go onto a website with, you know, these cookie warnings, uh, most often than not, they actually provide you with a choice on what's to be shared and what's not to be shared. During flow of everyday life, we tend to dismiss those options. But for me personally, that's something that I've been spending more time on uh, recently. But the bottom line is, I think, there is no way of being completely sure in the end. I've been also trying to do what John is doing with the cookie options, the privacy options. But ultimately, I don't think there's an individual level solution to the kind of tensions Conundrum we are facing and we will be facing in the near future. So, so I think this question of data sharing, privacy, surveillance, these are, you know, collective matters of citizens and there has to be perhaps collective solutions to them. And those solutions will only be found through, through public debate and then public movements, so to say. So I think what we should be doing is we should be politicizing these issues more and more in the years to come and, you know, collectively deliberate on them and then, you know, push for possible changes. But what those changes are, you know, I have no idea, honestly. And certainly we need a free academia and people like yourself to be working on these issues and researching without any interference. I hope those days will come. Thanks for all your work. Thank you for your contribution in this episode. It's been really, really enlightening. Thanks for inviting me. Any final comments, John? No, let me thank Matt as well. I think uh, this is very valuable research, uh, and I hope you guys will have time and manpower to actually extend the time period which you're covering. So thanks, everyone, for listening. And uh, hopefully see you next week. And Mark, don't forget to tell your students to listen to our podcast. <laughs> of course, sure. Thank you again for inviting me. It was a pleasure. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.